the way all young people do in New York. You're in the mix and you're going to parties and you're talking to people and there's salons and there's these things. It was like this emerging culture, whether it was DJ Spooky and going to the cool like after hours party just around the corner or Jamie Levy in the East Village doing cyber slacker stuff. There was a lot going on. There wasn't any hype yet. Everybody else was outside the circle. And then all of a sudden you realize you're in the circle. You know, I'm pinching myself right now thinking it's happening. The center of what's happening is right here. We just found ourselves right in the middle of it. I'm Shreen Patek, and this is Starting Out. Digiday's podcast where I take the personal route with the movers and shakers in the marketing industry to find out their stories, how they became the leaders they are today, and what's their special powers that makes their craft so remarkable. On today's episode, I welcome Jeff Datchis. In 1995, Jeff and his friend from elementary school, Craig Kanarik, founded Razorfish. What started as a small company operating out of Jeff's East Village apartment soon grew into a sprawling global agency that at one point had a $2 billion market cap. Jeff is a businessman with a creative soul who at one point became infamous for what people perceived as a colorful personality. He and Craig got a reputation for throwing carnivalesque parties, coning nightclub, and all in all, living the dream. Today, Jeff is a man with a mission who four years ago founded OneDrop, which is changing the face of diabetes and health data. But a lot of things in Jeff's life were not planned, like when he first came to New York from Minneapolis to audition for an acting course and ended up dancing instead. I wanted to go to Sarah Lawrence College. I got into Sarah Lawrence and my parents were like, no freaking way. We can't, we can't pay for this. And so I was looking for sort of the school that might be sort of similar to that. And I found a school called SUNY Purchase and they had a conservatory arts program. And I went to audition for the, the acting program. And when I got there, there was only like six slots or something like that. And they had already filled them. So I, I, you know, I'd flown to New York to audition and I was like all ready. And then there was no slots. And so I was like heartbroken. But, but then I saw a sign that said dance auditions upstairs. You're like, there. I was like, I wonder if I can go to go, go do the do dance that. audition. Yeah, that would be awesome. Um, you danced. Well, I, I had I had, done, had I had some training. Okay, yeah, you weren't yeah. just like walking into. I, I could do that. <clears throat> no. Okay. No. That would even be a better story, right? <laughs> that would be awesome. Um, no, I wasn't that awesome. Um, so I went upstairs and and uh, saw, and asked if I could if I could audition. And anyway, I got in and realizing probably about halfway through that program that I wasn't going to be good enough. Um, nor did I want to become a professional dancer at all. Um, but I really enjoyed the whole process. Um, I decided to double degree major in both uh, dramatic literature and dance, and then ended up finishing college sort of with a, a double degree. Um, I started a small business doing guerrilla marketing um, just just out of college and. That went pretty well for a while. And I was also sort of picking up some acting gigs here and there. I, I did a bad B-horror film where I get my spine ripped out by the alien. Um, I need more information. You don't, That doesn't come up as a throwaway. Tell me about this B-horror film. So it's me and the teens that we, they go away for the weekend to the summer cabin or whatever. School's out and, and, and we go to the summer cabin. And I played the nerdy character, David, um, who is in love with the... Brazilian foreign exchange student um, and we go to make out in the woods and before anything happens I get my spine ripped out by the alien um, and I'm the first one to die after 22 minutes so yeah so I was still kind of like I think that put the nail in the coffin when I realized I'm done with this like, this is just not what I'm gonna end up doing fast forward for me um, mid 90s you decide to start a company. well so we, we'd run the guerrilla marketing firm for a couple of years i'd been you know picking up some jobs here and there i went back to school and got my ma at nyu i was looking to build the business of 
creative expression. And there really wasn't a degree program there at the time. Um, so I built a degree um, half at Stern School of Business and half um, in Steinhardt and pulled together sort of the types of components that would help me further my interest in developing the business of creativity. What about it appealed to you? What was it like? What about it felt like this is what I want? So, if, you know, call it 10 years before that, you know, you had Ricky Rubin in his NYU dorm sort of starting Def Jam with Russell Simmons. And at the time, you know, the, the rap game was emerging in New York City. You know, we were making records in Jersey City too, you know, so there, I had a bunch of stuff going on. So, so the biz, that business was very interesting to me. Um, and as you started to think about, and sort of this is planting the seeds, as you started to think about CDs were these digital recordings of things. And the CDs were also what you used to put into your computer. And um, there were other kinds of CDs that were bigger and smaller, but in essence, they were digital recordings of things, um, music, um, computer code. Um, you had phone cards at the time. All of these dis- different forms of both communication, money, and media were starting to digitize at the time. And to me, I was like, there's something going on here that's going to converge. I want to be in that mix. What happened next? I'd finished my graduate degree. I was interested in exploring this stuff. I got an offer for a job at TVT Records. TVT was run by a guy named Steve Gottlieb. And Steve had a unique setup. Um, One, he had discovered the band Nine Inch Nails and Trent Reznor, and he had done a bunch of cool stuff with bands that I liked, like Autechre and KMFDM. And then he was sort of investing in, in, in rap music at the time with some early, early artists. Um, ended up doing Florida and a whole bunch of other stuff. But what was unique about Steve's business is that he did the A&R in-house. So he did the artist you know, rep and discovery. Um, and then <clears throat> they produced the records in-house. Um, he owned all the publishing and then he distributed all the records in-house. So he owned this completely vertically integrated production and distribution thing, right? And he owned all of the money. And so I was like, wow, this is amazing. As music starts to digitize, if we could distribute music digitally, we could produce it at TVT and um, distribute it over CompuServe or AOL or Prodigy at the time. And everyone's where, minds were like... Well, right. so, I, so I pitched this to Steve. And anyway, they brought me on as, as a VP of marketing. Um, and I was like, wow, okay, we're going to, I'm going to, here's a platform. There's something to do here. Um, I got fired after two weeks, um, cause I just spent all my time like harping to Steve about how this digital distribution of music thing was going to basically be the future of music. Um, and he fired me. I went in one day and I got handed my box, you know, and like escorted out by security. I was terrified. I mean, you know, honestly, you know, I've never been fired from anything in my life, but more importantly, um, I'm in New York City. I'm now out of a job. You're paying rent. <laughs> yeah. So I went down to the payphone and I called my former business partner, my guerrilla marketing partner. His name was Freddie Terranova. He hired me to do, um, I was working the night shift, um, 5 p.m. to 5 a.m., doing digital construction of, at the time, um, New York Newsday, um, The Daily News, Penthouse Magazine, Newsweek. Um, all of those things, those magazines that needed to go to print were needed to be constructed into a file, then those files needed to be in a sense deconstructed and processed and then sent digitally to printing presses all around the country, which then printed those things and put them on trucks and sent them to newsstands or delivered them to people's houses. And again, here we are talking about the production, you know, 
construction, distribution, and monetization of creative expression, vertically integrated, you know, same thing, you know, what was happening in the music business. Then randomly, you know, I'm living in the East Village on Avenue C, um, which at the time wasn't the, time the hotbed wasn't. that it is today. No. Um, there was no 7-Eleven. I was stepping over junkies in Tompkins Square Park. It was not a, not a pretty sight. And there's a special there's a special place for, you know, people who work the night job at that time in New York. That's really sort of that is it. Like there is there is no there is no more. You know, so, the movie Night Shift, you know, the all. all yeah. Yeah. That, it's, that's it. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's nothing, there's nothing more to this. <laughs> all kind of strangeness. All kinds of strangeness. Um, and and I think it was like a Sunday or Saturday. or I, I forgot what day it was, but um, I was in the East Village and I and I bump into this guy on the street. He's got long hair. He's got sort of these skull rings, you know, very East Village-y looking. Um, and it turns out it's this, it's my nursery school buddy, Craig Canerick. And Craig at the time, you know, when I was going to nursery school and through high school with him, um, was, was really smart, exceptionally. I mean, he today is still exceptionally, he's brilliant. But he didn't look like this when I was growing up with him. Um, and, and I hadn't seen him in a bunch of years. So, so... You're like, cool skull I was like, Craig, what's going on, man? Um, and so we started talking and he said, why don't we go get coffee? And we went and got coffee and then we went and hung out at his house for a little while. And he showed me this thing called the internet. And I was like, what is this? And he's like, it's a web browser. And like, I'm looking at my computer files in at MIT where he was, he had gone to MIT. And uh, my head exploded at that moment. I was like, this is the thing that is going to bring it all together. This is going to transform literally everything we know today. I asked him right then and there. I said, let's start a business. He looked at me like I had six heads. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. After this break, Jeff will talk about how this idea for a business with Craig took him to the life of the heady days of dot-com. But first, I want to take a minute to tell you about Digiday Plus. Digiday Plus is our premium membership product, and it's meant for people like you who really care about what's happening in the world of media. If you sign up and become a member at digiday.com, you'll get everything from Digiday Magazine, exclusive research, and invites to very special member-only events like live podcasts and special panels. And it's only $33 a month. You can sign up at digiday.com. And if you want a discount code, it's starting out, which will get you 25% off your subscription. Please check it out at digiday.com. Now back to the episode. So at the time, Craig was um, doing a bunch of freelance design work. He had a contract with a company called Tangent Design with a guy named Otto Timmons. And Tangent, they had just gotten a call from um, a company called Moda Media in Westport, Connecticut, to work on this idea called the banner ad. And then the banner ad like job comes in, right? So there's all this like activity around um, Modem contracting some of the work out to Tangent, and then Tangent and Otto and Craig and I start, you know, working. And, and anyway, Craig, Craig, um, we were forming the company at the time. Uh, Craig ended up designing that first banner ad, the very, the you know, the very the first very one. First um, the have you ever clicked your mouse right here AT and T ad? Um, and I remember sitting with him, you know, in his apartment. You know, we were like messing with the colors and messing with like he had this like rainbow font thing that he really liked to do. And so he, you know, so anyway, um, and so that was a really interesting time because. The design of that stuff, which we didn't think much of at the time, you know, ended up being sort of very formative in the beginnings of the internet. We formed our company right at the, you know, right about the same time. 
And uh, I'd just brought in a job from what at the time was Time Warner. They had developed a portal called Pathfinder. And uh, we ended up developing a, a, a chunk of Pathfinder. With the conversation that's happening around the experience of the internet today, like when you look back to that moment, that moment you're messing with a font or messing with a rainbow color on the first banner ad, I don't know, did you ever, like does this kind of blow your mind? Like, wow, this was, I can't believe all of this is happening. Our minds were sort of more blown then. At the time, you know, there was a really interesting group of people here in New York, you know, in Soho. What was interesting was this confluence of writers and drum and bass musicians and DJs and models and like B-boys. And Soho was still artists in loft spaces and the rave culture, you know, and all of that was emerging in downtown New York at the time. And so to be connected with all of these different creative people who were finding their way, you know, the way all young people do in New York, you know, you're kind of like, you're in the mix and you're going to parties and you're talking to people and there's salons and there's these things, but it was like, it was like this emerging culture. And so whether it was DJ Spooky and going to the cool, like after hours party just around the corner or the weird like Sony events that were happening uptown, there was a lot going on, you know, um, downtown. Did you feel swept up? Did you feel like you were in it? Like you were in, you were in the... The hype, like there the was, hype was real and it was zero. There, there wasn't any hype yet. That was the thing. This was like some, emer- like everybody else was outside the circle. And then all of a sudden you realize you're in the circle. You know, I'm pinching myself right now thinking it's happening. And we're, it's right here. Like the center of what's happening is right here. And so all of a sudden, you know, there was, you know, you can talk to lots of different people, whether it's Rufus Griscom at Nerve.com or, you know, go, go you know, you kind of go around the New York community. Mark Tribe was at Rhizome. I, you know, there was a whole crew of us that were coming up in New York City at the time. Um, at the same time, Jonathan Nelson and Brian Bellendorf, you know, are developing organic on the West Coast and Apache and like, you know, and Andreessen is pulling out a Urbana Champagne and, you know, creating Mosaic. And there's like, there's this thing going on. But right here in New York City, we just found ourselves, um, you know, stumbled or however you want to say it, right in the middle of it. You know, we started to get a lot of work um, when after the banner ad and after sort of the Pathfinder stuff, you know, Craig on his own, you know, developed this thing. Well, we had a website that we were um, displaying different types of artists like Jill Greenberg, who's a photographer, or Danny Clinch, who's a photographer, or Spencer Clint, Spencer Tudyk, who's a photographer. These were all up and coming artists at the time. Now, you know, they're famous. Um, but we were presenting their work on the web, which was totally new, and we needed a place to do it. So we created this environment called the Blue Dot. And the Blue Dot really was this. We, we knew we were developing commercial stuff for Time Warner, or, but, but we wanted to work with all these people that were around us to do all this cool stuff. You know, and you and that's the thing. Like you could, and there was no outlet for that. Was you yeah, had to it's have like Spencer happen. is you know taking these magnificent photos of thousands of people you know naked in these sculptural sort of panoramas, and you know, well, we I want to put it up on the web. You know, distribute. Yeah, I want. I Everyone wanna, should be able to. See yeah, that. yeah, we want to share all of these ideas, and so the blue dot was really our outlet to work with all of these creative people in this gestalt that was going on at the time this energy all these cyberpunks and freaks and ravers and musicians and b-boys like we wanted it all like we were it was all kind of all of our friends it was all going on at the same time you know did it grow like crazy I mean again you started in your apartment and like was there I mean was there just that explosion did 
Razorfish essentially, did it, did it grow faster than you expected? Sort of. I mean, you know, so we had this business thing going um, where we started to build stuff for other people, a services business. Um, and as we started to you know, understand what the business was going to be about or where the opportunities were, um, you know, we, we very quickly, um, I brought a guy named Oz Lubling into, in, into the picture of our first employee. And then a guy named Steven Turbeck and a girl named Hillary Evans. And, um, those were sort of our original employees. And, 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 and those folks were interested in doing the same kind of stuff that we were doing. And then, um, people started hiring us and, and it just kind of yeah, grew way faster than, I want to say, you know, we, we, we expected it, but we, you know, you couldn't have expected it. There was no way that you could imagine um, the kind of demand. This was happening against, and we spoke about this a little earlier, but this was happening against a backdrop of a lot of, a lot of excitement around the industry. And that inevitably was, who's Jeff? Who's Craig? What are they doing? What do they do in their free time? Who are these people? There was, there were stories about, where you hung out about drinks that were named after. What was it like hearing these stories? What was it like being like, well, suddenly my, not my work, not obviously people were talking about the work you were doing, but also yourselves as people. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Early on, 95, 96, 97, 98, um, you still had a lot of convincing to do. The internet wasn't a really, most people still at the time were not yet, convinced that this was going to be a thing you still had to go into meetings and tell people how to dial up how to get on the internet how to connect their modem how to launch a browser all of that stuff was not really like part of the mindset of everybody yet um even up into that point and 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 at that point you know and, and razorfish had grown very quickly you know from a million dollars in revenue the first year to you know 30 million dollars in revenue by by the end of 98 um so sort of a quick or I don't, I don't know the exact numbers, I don't remember, but it was, a, it was a rapid growth. And we had also bought a bunch of companies. So Omnicom had invested in us in 1996 and given us the capital that we needed to grow along with agency.com and along with Organic and Think New Ideas and Red Sky Interactive. And, you know, so we were kind of given the opportunity to grow this thing and grow it fast and big. And John Wren, for what it's worth, um, you know, I still to this day, you know, remember us sitting on the hood of his Volvo in, in Soho um, and working out the deal to, for them to invest in Razorfish. And, and he, he had a, a lot of vision and foresight in, in making that call. Um, and I'm grateful for the opportunity uh, that John gave us um, to, to grow the business the way that we did. He really, he really set up um, the beginnings of, of what was Razorfish in a good way. Now imagine, you know, you've got the blue dot, you're known for working with artists, but you've also built this big business. Um, it's profitable. We're, we're generating profits every day. That's not like this venture funded thing. We bootstrapped it. And, um, and so, you know, we're, we're, we're in a good spot as individuals, Craig and I, um, the company's in a really good spot. Um, and now all of a sudden people are starting to get excited about the internet. So you have like Ben Affleck calling and saying, hmm, I'm developing this thing called Project Greenlight. Would you guys be willing to work with us? And then, you know, Michael Stipe from REM's calling. And like all of a sudden you're getting all of this inbound from places that you couldn't even imagine that you'd be talking to X, Y, or Z. Like, oh, wow, you know. And so all of a sudden the, the, 
the personalities of Jeff and Craig. They suddenly um, enter the picture. Yeah, because um, there there are these people that want you know there it's this external thing um, internally like all of our employees and our our parents and our families and our the, the way we are with each other and everything none of that changed um, and it never changed really um, but the perception of who we were or who we are and the stories um, <laughs> you know did they sort- surprise you were you like where did that come from what's this what's this rumor what is not even rumor it was more just like lore it was legend it was jeff and craig out in the you know out on the lorry side whatever yes i mean we were provocateurs in some way i mean we 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 did have a massive party um that had krispy kreme donuts at it you know and at the time krispy kreme donuts at the party oh my gosh that seems insane you know um but you know or having um you know, people, we had a Brazilian drum corps at that party, you know, and they wore the fancy Brazilian carnival outfits, okay? That was a blast, by the way. The drum corps showed up at midnight. Um, everybody, you know, was dancing around, and it was really super fun and crazy. It was literally uh, two doors down from here. The Krispy Kreme donuts show up, and so, like, to me, that doesn't seem all that outrageous in today's terms, but some people thought... That's just that, a party at South by these that, days. That, that's right. But the carnival-dressed individuals um, turned into the lore of, you know, Jeff and Craig had transvestites at the party. Now, I'd be happy to have transvestites at the party. I don't have any problem with that. But just to say, like, the, the amplification of these sort of Brazilian carnival-dressed Brazilian drum corps outfit people turned into the transvestites serving Krispy Kremes at the party, you know, lore, which is crazy. Um, or it's not, it's not that crazy, but I mean, I mean, the point is, like, we didn't do a lot of that stuff. It just turned into the stories it's about that stuff. Yeah, on the one hand. On the other hand, let me say, when you got to that party, there was a video screen at the front door that looked like a security camera that showed people in a different room. Now, it wasn't a security camera showing people in a different room. It was a it was a, a tape that a videotape that we had made that was a pretend other room so that when people showed up at the party it would look like there was like the some other some other place that you're not in um, it's a good idea yes and on that videotape were people like you know doing lots of crazy things that were all pre-recorded and completely fake um, but when you got to the party and you see the sort of person at the front you know, front letting you in the door. And then there's the secret camera showing you the fake, but apparently apparently other secret back room thing. Everybody wants to get into that back room. And so a lot of people thought that that what was going on in that back room was real. You tapped into a natural human. Absolutely. Um, And so the lore gets built off of that stuff. Things you were kind Um, of doing, but not actually doing. Absolutely. What was the crash like? What was the dot-com bust like for you? The dot-com bust was retrospectively far more traumatic for me than I realized at the time um, for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly to do with 9-11. So, you know, you have to sort of address the idea that the trade centers came down and like a lot of people died and that was very traumatic for me. And that, that sort of coincided, you know, similarly with the identity of being part of this thing that was so amazing that there was lore about you. So having that um, reverse course in a lot of ways was was very traumatic. Um, it, it just changed everything in a lot of ways. Um, we had built this wonderful company with amazing people. And I have to say, 
you know, the talent at Razorfish today um, is is evidence of, you know, it's, it's 25 years old this year. Um, I don't know many companies that are around that are still 25 years old, but Razorfish is still kicking it hard. Um, 12,000 employees, a billion two in revenue, um, uh, you know, 70 offices kind of crazy worldwide. when you put it all together. Yeah. You know, and it's had its ups and downs and its iterations, and I, I certainly couldn't take credit for it in any way um, other than, you know, that, that time period. But um, the DNA is really there. This DNA of, like, relentless focus on technology, strategy, and creativity to transform people's businesses, and, and that's sort of still there. I want to talk about one drop. Sure. Uh, you were diagnosed with diabetes. You had sort of that coupled with sort of the what we were talking about earlier about creative ways to solve real problems how did those things kind of come together for you to create one job i took a lo- i took like seven years off um and skied the rockies and had kids and you know i started another business um and and so between one drop and razorfish there was some soul searching and some connection with things that matter being present for my wife and my kids and my family um you know, understanding, learning at, at, I think, a good age um, what's really important and what matters, um, learning from a lot of my mistakes, gaining, you know, some sense of calm and humility and presence and gratitude for all of the blessings that life brings us each and every day. Um, and that, I think, was the foundation that allowed me to sort of think about and enter one drop with the right set of both skills and experience and um, mindset. Getting diagnosed with um, type 1 diabetes uh, four and change years ago, probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, and I can say sure that. Sure didn't feel like, the, like that at the time. It didn't feel like that at the time. Um, I was terrified. I was uh, feeling very alone. It felt like this black towel was over my head. Um, one of the worst days of my life probably was, was the day I was diagnosed with diabetes because I really didn't know what to do. Um, I really was left kind of like, wow. You know, I, I had run marathons. I, I eat good. You know, I'd always lived pretty healthy. And then here this diagnosis, you know, I'd lost 25 pounds in like six weeks. And then, then I get this diagnosis. So what am I going to do? And a few days later, it sort of dawned on me that I can bring the skill sets that I've sort of accumulated over the years in, in digital, you know, user experience development and um, big data analytics and working with amazing people and potentially alter the trajectory of diabetes as we know it today. As, as many of you know, uh, diabetes affects 30 million Americans. Um, there are 80 million Americans with prediabetes. It costs in the U.S. about $625 billion a year to treat and $850 billion worldwide. Um, there's about 500 million people worldwide with diabetes and another 500 million people worldwide with prediabetes. And yet, you know, despite the fact that pharma companies have brought 40 new treatment pathways onto the market in the last 10 years and a trillion dollars in cash onto their balance sheets and $850 billion in, in buybacks By way, and dividends. You can't see Jeff, but he's totally, he's got crib notes. He's just <laughs> looking, he's tattooed on his arm. I'm kidding, he just knows this. <laughs> Despite the fact that these pharma companies have sort of reaped massive benefits, there's been zero 
zero improvement in the lives of people with diabetes. And at the same time, you've got the industrial food supply getting brought into developing countries like India and China and Brazil and the Middle East. And diabetes is a runaway pandemic. Um, and so whether it's type 1 or type 2 or, pre, or LADA or prediabetes, um, you know, you have this massive problem. And I thought, I wonder if, if there's a way for me to do something about it. And I had just sold my last company. And uh, my wife, you know, I, I, I said, I, I think I'm going to start another company. She's like, why are you, why would you do but that? Why? Why we just, yeah, we, we just, just, yeah, this. you're supposed to be on the beach. Uh, <laughs> what are you thinking? We'll get there, honey. We'll get there. <laughs> and I said, if we can help one person live a better life with diabetes, then, you know, I think it's worth doing, you know? So we founded One Drop with the idea of transforming the lives of every single person on the planet with diabetes. I'm, I'm very, very honored and grateful to be working not only with my team, but to know that the work that we're doing is touching, you know, people's lives every single day. And um, if I can just spend all of my time kind of relentlessly focusing on improving the lives of people with diabetes, uh, then, you know, then, then things are good and I wake up. Have you been to the things. beach the last four and a half years? <laughs> I haven't been to the beach. To the We're beach. going to the beach soon. Yay, soon. <laughs> that's Jeff Dachis and that's a wrap for today's show. Thank you for listening. Our producer is Aditi Sangal. If you like our show, please subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. And while you're there, please rate us and leave us a five-star review. I'm Shreen Pachek. We'll see you next week. <laughs>